Good morning. There we go. There we go. Well, good morning, ARC, and welcome to our guest. This is part five of our five M's for the new year with Jesus on the five M's. So what are our five M's? Our five M's are our five objectives that help us achieve our mission here at Anacostia River Church, and that's to glorify God by making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. So it's only right that we look to Jesus on how we should go about, number one of our objectives, sharing the message of the gospel. Number two, showing mercy to our neighbor. Number three, shepherding one another to maturity. Number four, seeking to multiply leaders and plant churches. And number five, sending missionaries to all the nations. So today we're on number five, sending missionaries to the nations. And we are in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20 this morning. But before we hear from the word of God, let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray once again, Lord, asking for your power to rest in the proclamation of your word. Hide me, Lord, behind the cross. We ask that you would speak, for your people have gathered to hear from you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my strength, my redeemer, in whom I trust, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. So most people have a family member or a friend that when they're around, you feel secure. You feel safe. You feel like everything is going to be all right. And for me, that was my cousin, Dude. He was a fighter. He was known in his neighborhood. And when I would visit him in Queens, it seemed like everyone knew him. Wherever we went, I knew everything was going to be all right. See, there's a certain confidence that comes with that almost a borderline arrogance, right? Certain places you would never go, you now go with confidence. You have a new walk, a new talk. Certain things you would never say, you now say boldly. And for me, that was my big cousin. And as long as my eyes were focused on him and I knew he was in the vicinity, I was good. His power, his reputation, his presence was all that I needed. And if you had that type of person, put that extra battery in your pack, if you would, who was but flesh and bones, mere mortals, how much more for the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God of all creation, who is with you, who has gone before you, and who is in you. See, if we believe that, we would walk different, we would talk different, and we would see everything through that lens. So the big question I have for us this morning is what's your focus when you think about global missions? I mean, even the, the thought of global missions just sounds enormous. Do you look at the overwhelming task of reaching people far away who are nameless or faceless? Do you look inward at your inability or your inadequacy, your doubt, your fear? Lord, send me here, but don't send me over there. Or do you look up where your focus is on God himself? And that's why Jesus can say in this fifth M and final M of our series in the Great Commission to look up to him and his great authority, his great power, and his great promise for his great commission. In other words, to take your eyes off of other things, worldly things, and secondary things, and look to the Lord 
your God. So with that, we want to look to the Lord our God this morning by looking at his words found in Matthew chapter 28. And we'll start in verse 16 just for context and read down to verse 20. Here is God's word. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This was a big task. This is still a big task, but I'm here to remind you and to persuade others that we serve a big God. And to be sure that we do remember, we have three reminders from this particular text this morning, that when facing a God-sized task like missions, be reminded that number one, Jesus has all power and authority. He is king of kings and he is Lord of lords. And number two, Jesus calls us to be world Christians. The same God who called you in salvation is the same God who calls you for service. And if one promise is good, yes and amen, then the other is just the same. And number three, and finally, Jesus's presence will be with you. So we'll start in verse 16 and 17, where it says, um, this is really just to set the context. This is after the resurrection. Jesus is now risen, just like he had said, proving that he is who he claimed to be, the son of God. And then immediately we see that the 12 disciples are now down to 11. And in this sober reminder, there is still a spark of hope where it says, after G Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus and they came to Galilee. And we see that not betrayal nor death or even the grave could stop the plan of God and of Christ. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, and he did the majority of his ministry there in Galilee. This was their stomping grounds where they would go often and was familiar with these surroundings. Now, it doesn't say which mountain in Galilee he directed him to, but Matthew, who is the writer of this particular gospel, he knows his audience. And they're primarily Jewish Christians, and they would know that God has given great revelation before on mountains. So think of Moses on the mountain when God spoke to him and gave the Ten Commandments. You think of Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, giving kingdom ethics to his people. You think of the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus gave a glimpse of his glory to Peter, James, and John. And now the writer is letting us know that this is about to be another mountaintop revelation, one of extreme importance. And why do I say extreme importance? Well, these are some of Jesus's very last words to his disciples. And his last words should be there, and it should be our first priority. Think of a father on his deathbed about to leave this earth and he gathers his children. There are no words that are wasted. Every word is weighty and all eyes and all ears are attentive to what's being said because last words are meant to be lasting words. 
So although this was a familiar place to both Jesus and his disciples, it was not nostalgia that brought them there. It was because Jesus, the resurrected Lord, had something to say. He had something to say before he ascended back to the right hand of the Father in heaven. But when he arrived on the scene in verse 17, it says that when they saw him, some worship and others doubted. This combination of worship and wavering. See, the Bible doesn't leave this part out. See, if the Bible were fiction, it would omit details like this. But this actually authenticates that these events are true and untampered. But from this statement, we learn that Jesus's mission does not depend on our faith or lack of faith. And see, this is helpful because we can at times think of missions as yet just another thing to do. But the reality is we get to do this. We get to, re to join the God who is redeeming a people from every people to worship him. We get to do that. See, this is the great commission. And it will be successful, but the question is, will we be able to rejoice and sing with the choir of Psalm 96, where David says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. We get to do this. Or like Isaiah the prophet who saw the Lord both high and lifted up with the train of his robe filled the temple. And when the Lord thundered from on high, he said, who shall go for us? And Isaiah responded, here I am, Lord, send me. What did the psalmist see? What did Isaiah see? They saw that God is a big God and deserves all praise, all glory, all honor from all nations. Glenn Hoffman in this past perspectives class says something profound regarding the nations, peoples, and tongues of the earth. He said, English in any one language for that matter is far too limited to give God glory around his throne. Each nation is uniquely suited to give a particular praise and God deserves and requires representatives from every nation, tribe, and tongue. A particular praise, I like that. And our faith or our lack thereof will not stop this. But what it should do is encourage us to see God receive his particular praise from every people group of the earth. This is our motivation. Love of God and concern for his glory and love of man and concern for his welfare. In that order. And here we see some who bow the knee in worship and adoration of the risen Christ and others who hesitated in doubt. They were hesitant. And because not all doubts are the same, not all, all doubters are treated the same. Some doubt calls for patience. Some doubt calls for compassion and understanding. Some call for encouragement to persevere. In some cases may call for a rebuke. And that's why we see a range of responses from Jesus towards those who doubted, from Peter to John the Baptist to Thomas, it was grace, there was great patience, there was proof and reproof. And for us, sometimes that battle comes from outside of us and at other times inside of us, but know that it does come. These things are common to man. But we ought to take heart that as a man, Jesus is acquainted with our frailty, but as God, he is both willing and able to help us. And I'm struck by this particular instance of Jesus's approach to doubters. 
Look at how he reassures them in verse 18. Jesus comes and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What an apologetic. He assures them by reminding them that he is God. And how often do we forget this? Jesus is not a philosophy teacher to debate. He's not a prophet among many to consider. His claims are a matter of both life and death. So Jesus draws near and he reminds them and reassures them in one statement, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And how many of us need to hear that today? That God is bigger than all we see and experience at the present moment. This doesn't mean that while on earth, that Jesus didn't have authority after his resurrection. But now he has demonstrated he has universal authority and fulfillment of the scripture that Pastor T just read. You see, in the book of Daniel, which was written hundreds of years earlier, the prophet spoke of a son of man in this way in Daniel 7, 14. He said he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Hallelujah. The Son of Man being enthroned as a ruler of the world was fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection. Now, I know we're talking about missions, but we have to first understand his authority. And the phrase all authority actually means both power and authority to command total obedience. It's a subtle difference between power and authority. It's sort of like the difference between a crossing guard and a police officer. And I so appreciate our crossing guards, right, who literally risk life and limb to help kids cross the street. But drivers disrespect them. And at times they even ignore them, but not so with a police officer. Why? Because he has both a badge and a gun. And a crossing guard has the authority to say, come, and he has the authority to say, go. But a police officer can enforce that. See, that's power and authority. And if so, for an officer of the law, how much more for the risen Christ? His authority spans all the angels in the heavens and all people of the whole earth and all demons in hell. Nothing is out of bounds for Jesus. Dutch reformer Abram Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That quote never gets old to me. Let it encourage you to starve your doubt and feed your faith. Now with that kind of absolute authority, think what he could say. Think what he could do. But now look at his response. He encourages them and then calls them to do the impossible, to be world Christians. These were common folk that God commissioned to do uncommon things. You can imagine the thoughts in their minds. I don't know anybody outside my own town, much less outside Galilee. What will I eat? Lord, you know my stomach issues. Will I need to learn a new language? I don't have the right education, so on and so on. I'm just common. But these situations appear impossible, but this is by design so that there is no doubt 
that God did it. Luke 18, 27, it says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. In 2017, we went on our first mission trip here at ARC to Mombasa, Kenya. And A. Nicole, AKA Queen, AKA, I don't know what she's calling herself this week, but my sister, she was going through a tough time. Uh, she was grieving. She had lost her grandmother three months earlier and a recent loss of her mom. She didn't know if she would or should go on this trip. Didn't know if she could offer anything in this season of her life. It was difficult and it seemed impossible. But little did she know that in Mobasa, Kenya, there was someone who had also recently lost a loved one. And out of all the people on the team, guess who he connected with? A. Nicole. And she began sharing how grief is a process and how she had found hope in Christ and in the gospel. See, someone needs to hear this testimony to know that God doesn't just use you for ministry, but God first loves you as a child. And because he loves you as a child, he uses you for ministry to bring him glory. Second Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God doesn't just use you, but God loves you. Because God loves you, he uses you for his glory. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of God controls. Another translation says, compels us because we have concluded this, that one, Jesus has died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. So in other words, Christ's love, which has converted us, now compels us, it comforts us, and it calls us. And our confidence is he has all power and authority to do all of these things at the same time. And our second reminder when facing a God-sized task of missions is to be reminded that Christ himself is the one that calls us to be world Christians. Every negative thought, every apprehension, every excuse, Christ gives the same charge in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is what I so appreciate about the scriptures. It doesn't just say what to do, but it also tells us how to do it. There is a plan and a process. And I love that it starts with the word go. Christianity is a go and tell faith, not a come and see relic, religion, or building. In other words, Jesus expects his disciples to go and compel men, women, boys, and girls to come to repentance and faith in the risen Christ. Jesus expects those who are living in rebellion to his lordship to hear the good news that God has made a way through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, for their salvation. And as the one with all power and, the, and authority, he also expects for you to turn from sin and trust in him even today. This is the message we believe. This is the message that is offered to you now. And it's the message we proclaim. Believe in the risen Christ and be saved. 
But notice that the plan doesn't stop at just go make converts, but go make disciples. Disciple is one who follows Jesus. Yes, it starts with learning, but it continues with multiplication. That's part of the plan. And that's important for us to hear because we can get caught up in so many other agendas and programs for us to be a part of to the point that we think our plans are more clever than Christ. But it doesn't stop there. The main thrust of the plan is to make disciples of all nations, of all nations. When we say nations, this is not a geopolitical boundary that you see on today's map, but these are the many ethnicities of the world. These are the ethne, the ethnic people groups, the Gentiles, the other, the outcasts, the non-Jew. Now you have to understand how that sounded in the ears of these Jewish disciples. There was a scorn and a hatred of the Gentiles. They were seen as unclean, enemies of God's people. Even if they became converts, they were seen as second-class citizens. See, this feels and sounds so familiar. So locally, there are segments of people that wonder, could anything good come from Ward 7 or Ward 8? Why even plant a church there? Because Jesus said, make disciples. And when we think about globally, there are segments of people that say, why would you go all the way over there in that God-forsaken country when there are so many issues we face right here in our area? Because Jesus has all power and he says, go to the nations. And God's great commission is not the great suggestion. His church is not divided locally or globally, nor should it be pitted against itself. Jesus said, go both to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and the ends of the earth. It's not about either or, it's about both and. And in fact, have you ever considered that what you've been doing here may be preparing you for ministry to the nations? Even your experiences are a testimony to the world. In Africa and Asia, we've heard from Christians and non-Christians who wanted to hear our story. Our story of how did you survive and persevere as African-Americans through slavery and Jim Crow and injustices. And they wanna know how have we stewarded these past and present afflictions. The world is watching. They sometimes know our history better than we do. But what a unique opportunity that we have to magnify and point them to Christ. The Lord is calling us, white, black, brown, people of color, to be world Christians. And we can sometimes hold our noses up at the disciples in the gospels, like how could they treat the Gentiles like that? But the reality is the word serves as a mirror to show us us. In our heart of hearts, what do you think of all the nations, the tribes, and peoples of the world. Better yet, have you thought of the nations, tribes, and peoples of the world? Look how God's word confirms and reveals God's heart for the nations. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse one and three that we heard earlier, God said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you may be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram was blessed to be a blessing to all 
all the families of the earth. God's heart was for the nations way back in Genesis. And in Psalm 46.10, many of this, we, we memorized this verse as, as Christians early on, many of us. And it says, be still and know that I am God. And we love that. But it continues to say, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yes, this is a great comfort for God's people, but it is also a wake-up call that he is more than a local deity, but he is the God of all nations, and he will be exalted in all of the earth. Psalm 67 says, may the, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you so that, and notice that this is a comma, not a period, your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. See, missions exist because worship doesn't. Our God is great and he is worthy of all praise from every nation, tribe, and tongue. But there are peoples who have yet to hear of this Christ and worship him. And that's why from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God himself has been on mission. And he commands us here in Matthew to press into that mission to go and make disciples of all ethnic people groups. And the 17,600 people groups. And I know a lot of times we hear those numbers and they're just numbers, but think of these not as statistics, but as a souls. 17,600 different people groups in the world. And they're classified by religion, ethnicity, language, and culture. But of those, 7,000 are what we call unreached, meaning little to no access to the gospel. And in 2021, there are those who have never heard of Jesus in the gospel. I heard a quote recently that said, no one has the right to hear the gospel twice while there remains someone who has not heard it once. No one has the right to hear the gospel twice while there remains someone who has not heard it once. I recognize the gospel is not just for non-Christians, it's for Christians as well. But think about it. How many times have we heard the good news? See, for me, this is the biggest apologetic in my mind as to those who, who say we have lost people right here among us. Yes, that's true, but that's why you're here on the block, in the workplace. That's why we exist as a church, to evangelize. So in that way, it's not about lostness, but it's about access. The Lost Have Mercy of Christ Fellowship Church, ARC, CHCC, and other faithful churches, but the least reach and unengaged have no one. It's a priority, not because of lostness, but because of access. Romans 10, 14 says, how can they call on the one whom they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? The heaviest concentration of these unreached are in the area of the world known as the 1040 window, an area of the world that spans across Northern Africa, Middle East, and parts of Southeast Asia to include Thailand. And one way to remember the five major religions in this window is to pray for them as you 
look at your hand. So take a look at your hand. And starting with your thumb, spell out thumb. T-H-U-M-B. That's tribal, Hindu, unreligious, Muslim, and Buddhist. A good way to remember to pray for people. When we think of tribal, there's 160 million unreached image bearers. So we talked about that 7,000 or so unreached people group. Within that are millions of people. For tribal is 160 unreached image bearers. And there's only six cultural workers to 1 million people. Six workers to 1 million people. We're talking about access. Hindu. There's 850 million unreached image bearers, two cross-cultural workers per 1 million people. Unreligious, 120 unreached image bearers, 12 cultural workers per 1 million people. Muslim, 1 billion unreached image bearers, six cultural workers per 1 million people. Buddhists, 275 million unreached image bearers, 13 cross-cultural workers per 1 million people. Talking about access. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, pray, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. We see God's heart for the nations in his word. We see the status of the world, and it can be overwhelming to think. But remember that God is a big God and his plan works and so does his process. Notice there in verse 19 where he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So when people respond to this good news, they respond to the gospel and they uh, trust in Christ and turn from sin and they have we then baptize them. This is part of the discipleship process. Baptism symbolizes identifying with Christ and being a part of his church. Now, baptism doesn't make you a Christian, but every Christian makes this very public declaration. This is the line in the sand. This is actually very revolutionary. And I recognize here in the United States, it's a wonderful celebration. It's a time where family and friends, they gather, they take pictures. And even if you're not a Christian, you acknowledge your happiness for the individual who's being baptized. But not so in countries within the 1040 window. Publicly identifying with Christ can cause you to lose family, friends, and even your life. I met Prem in Thailand in 2012 at an English camp. And while using a Bible-based curriculum, our team shared the gospel with Prem. And initially, he was not interested at all. But his friend was. And Prem was a Buddhist that was engaged in various sinful activities. But he had an opportunity to see his friend get baptized at this camp. And he heard his friend's testimony, and he saw the gospel reenacted in baptism, and he was rocked, to say the least. The pastor said, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He dunked them in the water, brought them back up, symbolizing Christ's death and resurrection. And all the Christians cheered, wept, and embraced him as a brother. And Prem made the comment. He said, although his parents are not here to support him, it looks like he now has a new family. I said, wow, man, he gets it. 
When mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me in, Psalm 27, 10. And that's where discipleship takes place in the context of the church, loving one another through good times, hard times, afflictions. And by this, the world will know that you are Christ's disciples. But see, the story doesn't end there for Prem. ARC went back in 2019 and Prem had been freed from Buddhism and the stronghold of a homosexual lifestyle that he was engaging in. And he is now married to a missionary and serving faithfully in the church. Praise be to God. And they both knew the risk. They both counted the cost. And they both declared publicly that Jesus is worth it. And God worked powerfully in their act of obedience. The next part of that discipleship process that Jesus lays out is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. This is obedience. In order to teach what God has said, we have to first know what he has said. That's not just on Sunday morning or in Bible study, but with one another in community. Not everyone will teach or preach like Pastor Tim Tunde or Thabiti, but in our conversations, we can have them being filled with Bible. And in that way, we disciple one another. This is God's plan and his process for our neighbors, for the nations, and for ourselves. This happens both formally and informally, where we push back on what the world says in the news and social media, and we hear from the word of God and what God has to say teaching one another to observe all that Christ has commanded. Not just hearing, but applying. And this includes to go make disciples of all nations. That's God's plan. That's God's process. And then lastly, he gives us the promise of his presence. See there in verse 20, it says, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And if his proclamation of his authority and power are not enough, he now gives us a promise, a promise of his presence. Like a child starting to walk, his father has the power and authority to catch him if he falls. So he gives the command to come and he gives the command to go. But it's something totally different when that same father is with you holding your hand. Before your steps were a little shaky, but now holding his hand, you're ready to run. And nothing makes a father prouder than to say, look at him go. Look at my son, look at my daughter go. Run with Jesus, family, knowing his promise is with you. Run with Jesus, knowing his presence is with you. And this is not Jesus's wishful thought, but it's a rock solid promise that as you go to make disciples of all nations, he is with you. And this passage alludes to Moses on Sinai when he was before the Lord and he said, Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. But as eager as Moses was for God's presence to go with him, God had and has a deep desire for his presence to be with his people. See, this is very comforting. This is reassuring. This, is, this gives confidence. This is exactly what we need to go to know that the omnipotent God is going with us. But this characterizes who he is throughout redemptive history. His track record speaks for itself. God dwelt with Adam in the cool of the day in wonderful fellowship between God and his people. God dwelt in the tabernacle as a cloud by day and a fire by night to lead and guide the Israelites. God dwelt in the temple in the Ark of the Covenant within the midst of their community. 
God dwelt with us as Emmanuel. And Jesus came in the flesh and walked among us. God, the Holy Spirit now dwells within us presently in and among his people. We long for the day when Revelation 21.3 will become a reality where John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of man is with God and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. And this is the hope of missions that a people from every people will be his people and he will be their God. Because this, this is coming, there's coming a time when this present age will end. For my non-Christian friends, the delay of the Lord's return is because God does not wish that any should perish, but that all will come to repentance. Hear the Savior's heart in this, that he has commissioned all his people, his church everywhere, to go to the nations, to all peoples, to tell them about Jesus and to make disciples. His love for you should be seen in his relentless pursuit of you. This should fuel us to go, but this should also fuel you to come. Jesus even now is pursuing you. Repent and believe. And for Christians, I'm gonna leave you with five habits. And I say five habits because it's not just a one and done, but these are things that by God's grace, we can continually grow in as we consider God's word, God's world, and our role in God's work. Number one, go. Two, send. Three, welcome. Four, mobilize. And five, pray. Number one, go. Go on a cross-cultural mission trip. Go short-term. Go long-term. Go to plant a church or to be a part of a church planning team. Remember, we get to do this. Exposure and experience is huge for many of us in our context. Start with a short term. This is where, for most people, the dots connect. But know this, just getting on a plane or crossing the water does not automatically make you a missionary. What you do here locally is a good indicator of what you'll do overseas. So if you're sensing a desire to go, one way to discern these motives is to ask, what am I currently doing? Number two, send. If you cannot go yet, send someone who can. And in that way, you partner with the one who does go. Think about this. Which is more important, the rescuer who goes down into the well or the one who's at the top holding the rope? The reality is you can't have one without the other. As we read in Romans, Paul shows the necessary um, need for both senders and going. When he says in Romans chapter 10, 14 and 15, he says, how, how then will they call on him in whom they believe? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So sending is a necessary part of the Great Commission. Number three, welcome. Missions is crossing ethno-linguistic cultural barriers, right? Going to the ethne so that they would know and that they would worship and glorify God. So what happens when the nations are literally next door? Is that still cross-cultural missions? Absolutely. 
We are not necessarily called to a place, but we are called to a people. So for example, there are over a million international students here within our borders. And I didn't know that until one day I went one of our uh, campus partners to the University of Maryland. And they had this thing they called a tabling event. And this is where you set up a table during orientation week and they had students fill out survey cards. And this showed me two things. One, we have a tremendous opportunity to reach the ethne here at home. And number two, it saddened me how blind I was to what God was sovereignly doing among us. So at this tabling event, they had survey cards that they filled out. Um, and in these cards, it asked them where they from, what's their background? Are they interested in studying the Bible? Are they interested in going to church? Are they interested in all of these different things? And oh, by the way, there's this telling statistics that says over 70% of international students are never invited into an American home. They come here to study and experience American culture and yet are never invited into that home. What an opportunity for us. But as we collected all of these cards, hundreds of cards, and we took them back and we went to pray and we noticed that um, as we were looking at them, the different names, folks were from Afghanistan, studying engineering, China, studying finance, all of these unreached places that missionaries cannot traditionally go to, they were literally here on our college campus. And we saw that as a great opportunity. Welcoming students, welcoming refugees are a huge part of the Great Commission. Number four, mobilize. When I go on a short-term trip, whether it's Haiti, Bangkok, Thailand, or Mombasa, Kenya, the question I get is, where are all the people of color, and specifically African-Americans? For some, it's the first time that they've ever seen a person of color. They've never seen them as a missionary. But here's the reality. Of all the missionaries overseas, African-Americans make up less than 1%. Less than 1%. They're unreached peoples over there, but equally devastating is the undermobilized that are here. Perhaps one is waiting for the other. But we want to reverse that trend. And in 2022, we have a couple of opportunities coming up for us as a church to pray for a team, to go with a team, or to send a team. So please come see me if you're interested in any of these opportunities that we mentioned here. Number five, pray. Remember, we talked about thumb. And as I mentioned earlier, pray for laborers. And when the Lord shows you your role, walk by faith and obedience to what he's called you to. So as we go and make disciples of all ethne people groups, know that doubt will come, think it not strange, but know that Jesus has all power, he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and rest in that fact and go in humble obedience. Know what it means to be a world Christian through the study of God's word, through his heart for the nations, God's world and the opportunities to obey the Great Commission, following his plan, his process to redeem a people from all people. And lastly, know that God's presence will be with you. So let's pray that that will be a reality here for ARC. Let's look to the Lord. God, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for saving us and and now entrusting us, Lord, with the privilege to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
God, you are a big God and you call us to a great task. But let us always be reminded, Lord, that you have all power and that you have all authority and that you have promised to be with us always. Oh God, may we find hope and peace and courage in that. And I pray, Lord, for our current missionaries that they would also believe that. You lift up the birds, the woods, Kayla, the chins, Lord, that they would not grow weary in well-doing. Or at the proper time, Lord, <laughs> they who go, they who sin will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.